Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. The dust of Strade Bianche has settled and we were treated to two epic editions of this classic race at the weekend. We're going to take a 360-degree look at Strada Bianchi 2023. We had staff writer Rachel Jarry in Siena reporting on both races, and you can find her excellent and prolific work on the Rulo website at rulo.cc. I'm going to talk to Rachel about the racing and what it all meant. But we also had James Start, Rulo's photojournalist, making his debut on a moto at Strada Bianchi. He's going to tell us about the chaos, intensity and impressions of what is possibly cycling most photogenic race. And finally, I'm going to talk to Rula Italia editor Emilio Previtali about the cultural significance of Strade Bianche and what place it has in the Italian cycling landscape. And finally, Dan Cavallari will be talking tubeless tyres with Jeff Schneider, the global head of product and marketing at Cadex. First, we're going to talk with Rachel Jarry, who went to Siena to cover Strade Bianche. Rachel, how was your trip? It was great. It was my first time covering Strade Bianche on the ground, so I wasn't really sure what to expect, but I really enjoyed it. Like I'd never been to Siena before, and to see like that iconic finish line in person was really, yeah, it was really amazing. And all of the fans that came out being in the Piazza del Campo at the the finish with them all watching it on a big screen, the atmosphere was pretty amazing. And it's one of the few races where you can get really up close to the riders at the end. They let journalists basically get quite close and get the riders right at the finish line. And it's a little bit chaotic, but it's really fun. And it's much better than being fenced off behind a press zone with your microphones you can actually just go up to the riders and get them straight after they've finished and capture those sort of raw emotions which which is really good yeah long list stride bianca and i think a lot of other races could learn from what you've just said there so a very very brief account of what happened in the two races in the women's race the sd works partnership of lotta kopecky and demi following chased down lone escapee Kristen falter catching her on the final climb into Siena. Vollering then narrow outsprinted her teammate for the victory, though eyebrows were raised at how fiery the competition between them seemed to be. And there was a supremely awkward post-race interaction in which it became clear that SD Works didn't have a plan for this eventuality. In the men's race, Tom Pidcock attacked with 50 kilometres to go and seemed to be being closed down by a five-strong group. 
However, the group's cooperation broke down, leaving Pidcock away for a solo victory. Rachel, I've barely scratched the surface, have I? Yeah, I mean, both races had two really different stories, which were both really interesting. I think the men's race, a lot of the focus was on Tom Pidcock, but actually what was going on behind him and the dynamics in Jumbo Visma, the team that many people expected to dominate this race again, was just as interesting as him going solo. And I think what made that so exciting was his gap the gap that the chasing group had to him came down to as little as seven seconds. Really, he shouldn't have stayed away. I mean, what a lone rider when the gap's seven seconds, that they should get caught, especially when it's a hilly finish like that. But because of Jumbo Visma's poor tactics in the group behind and the fact that that group just literally could not coordinate a chase, probably didn't help by the fact they had Rui Costa there, like refusing to do any work ever. <laughs> doing doing Rui Costa stuff. Exactly. They just couldn't bring him back. And it was, yeah, there was so so many interesting dynamics going on in that group behind. And Pidcock just had his head down and could could go for it. So that was really interesting. In the women's race, the, that, the main story has to be that that sprint. It was shocking. Oh, not to mention, of course, the, the horse on the course a little bit before that, Dem- Vollering ended up behind a wild horse who'd kind of got onto the course and it ended up falling over as she was trying to make a solo breakaway. So that was, it was just all a bit weird. Like that horse was on the course and then suddenly there was two teammates sprinting against each other. And at the finish, they both were so confused and that there was all these rumours. Vollering had actually sworn at Capecchi over the line and shouted at her. Um, so all the press, all the journalists were trying to ask her about this and she was really emotional. I mean, it, it was pretty crazy, actually. It was one of the craziest finishes I've ever seen. So let's drill down into the races in the order they happened in the women's race was first. So it was interesting because, I mean, the, the, the race was about to break up, wasn't it? And Vollering attacked, went away. And then Lotta Kopecki bridged up to her and the positive thing for SD Works is that, that she didn't take anybody with her. So in essence, it, it it kind of made the race easy for there to be an SD Works winner, didn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting one because we don't know. Kristen Faulkner, for a start, was incredibly strong. And if Kopecky hadn't have bridged across to Vollering, there's every chance that Vollering might not have caught Faulkner because... Obviously, there was two of them. They were able to share out the work. So that was definitely a positive for the team. But then when they finally caught Faulkner, it was, I think it was about 700 metres to go. And I actually spoke to Anna Vanderbreggen after the race, who's obviously the sports director for SD Works. And I said, why didn't you tell them what to do? She said, well, to be honest, they were very worried about not catching Faulkner. So they didn't have time to make the decision about which rider should win. And it just all happened so quickly that the riders decided. But Vollering said in the press conference afterwards that coming into the final sprint, she looked over her shoulder and was about to start celebrating with Kopecky. She was kind of ready to do the whole hand-holding thing. And then Kopecky came round her and Vollering said she thought, oh, maybe she's doing a lead out for me because I've been out front longer. I've never won this race before. Maybe she's going to lead me out for victory. But then she said Kopecky was riding so hard in front of her that she realised okay, we're racing now. This isn't a lead out. And they ended up sprinting out against each other. And it it was crazy. Yeah, it's funny. I'm in two minds about this because when you get a strong team like that who have two riders away and contesting the victory, and I've I've seen it many times before in cycling, it's kind of anticlimactic in a way. It kind of feels like the race is already over. And it seems like when there's a team that that's strong, it kind of takes away some of the sporting intrigue for me. On the other hand, it's kind of not the done thing in cycling, is it, for teammates to contest a race against each other? It's kind of sorted out between them. So it's a a funny one. But I I think the fact that they did sprint said a lot about the fact that, you know, SD Works is a very strong team, very deep team, with very strong, ambitious riders. And 
that is not easy to manage. No, exactly. I think it was great that they sprinted. It made for a really exciting finish. And that's what racing's all about. It's what we all want to see is riders sprinting for the victory. But I think where they went wrong is I think they should have come over the line and said straight away, oh, the directors told us to sprint out against each other. That's what racing's about. You know, we decided to do it. But it was the way that they were both so confused and there was so much left unsaid that I think that's what caused all the discourse and the drama around it. If they'd have just come out and said, look, we're both bike racers, we both wanted to win. So we decided with 5k to go, we were going to sprint out between us. That would have been a lot simpler and a lot less drama around it and a lot less of a story. But the fact they didn't come out and say that and there was all, Vollering was so obvious that she thought they were going to win together and then and then they didn't. Yeah, that, that kind of made the whole thing worse, I think. So later on in the men's race, the two main stories from my point of view were Jumbo Visma not quite getting it together as they had done in Belgium the weekend before, and Tom Pitcock. So let's cover those two things. The problem with Jumbo Visma's strategy and tactics on the day was that there was a point where Pitcock was, he wasn't that far, he was never more than a minute ahead. A chase group had formed with Tish Benut, Valentin Madouas and Rui Costa. That looked to be fairly cohesive and also strong, you know, they'd, they'd gone away on a, a particularly grippy part of the course. But then somehow they were caught from behind. So what happened there from your perspective? Well, I think Attila Walter, who was in the group behind, he's obviously a teammate of Tij Benu. And on the climb, he was riding with, I think it was Mohorek and Quinn Simmons, who obviously are probably not quite as strong climbers on those steep gradients as he is. So he dropped them, basically. I don't think he attacked. I think he dropped them on the climb. He was just going better than them and then he he was solo he was in between the two groups so Tij Benut was in front and Quinn Simmons and Mate Mohorek were behind and he did have a big gap but kind of as he went over the top of the climb and the road flattened out they started closing the gap again to him so when Walter finally reached the group of Benut it looked like he dragged Mohorek and Simmons over to the chase group which I can see why Benut would have found that annoying because they're two really strong finishers and two of the most dangerous riders in the race when it comes to attacking or like doing a good sprint in the final but from my perspective I don't think Volta meant to did drag them over I think it was just the optics of it when Benut turned around and looked over his shoulder he saw Valta and those two on his wheel and it looked like he just closed the gap but really he did actually drop them on the climb and it was just on the flat and the slightly downhill section over the top that they closed the gap to him again. Yeah I agree it, it shows how fine the margins are doesn't it because when Lotta Kopecki attacked and bridged to Vollering. I think Cecily almost got, got up to them, but not quite. And it was hailed as tactical genius by SD Works. Valter kind of pulled a similar trick or tried to pull a similar manoeuvre in the men's race and it didn't work. And it, you know, everyone's talking about Jumbo Visma you know, suddenly being bad at bike racing. But I agree with you. I think it was Quinn Simmons who did most of the work to try and close the gap. And I think in Volta's mind at that point, there was a split second decision. He thought he was going better than Mohoric and Quinn Simmons. If he could get rid of them, and he was he was doing so, bridge up to that group, then there'd be four of them, two Jumbo Visma riders, probably a committed chase and Pidcock not that far ahead. And it would load the dice in Jumbo Visma's favour. And it was kind of his bad luck or maybe a moment of misjudgment or just you know in the heat of battle it's you can't be rational about these things and you can't you don't have hindsight it just so happened that they got back up to him and that's what formed the final chase group where it all just it was kind of frustrating but compelling to watch I couldn't take my eyes off it I just thought it was 
one of the least cohesive groups I've ever seen in a big race. Yeah, I mean, Jumbo Visma did still have two riders in that group. So uh, I kind of felt a bit like Benut was almost sulking at that point and he wasn't prepared to commit or do or communicate with Volta at all. They, they literally didn't seem to be speaking, which is really weird for like two teammates in the chase group. And I think from Benut's perspective, you know, as, as such an experienced rider, he probably didn't deal with that situation in the best way. And he should have sort of forgotten what had happened on that climb before and refocused and thought of the best way to bring back Pidcock. I think that if Benu hadn't had to do those attacks earlier on and he'd been fresher on the final climb because Valter had done the work in the chase group, he might have been able to out-sprint Maduas. And if Pidcock had been brought back at that point, that would have been the sprint for victory. And Benu did actually say after the race, he thought he had the legs to win. So... It's pretty disappointing from them. Yeah, he's he's a previous winner and it did literally look like one more turn by one rider would have closed the gap to Pidcock um, without maybe seven or eight kilometres to go. So let's talk about Pidcock. Just seems to go from strength to strength, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty amazing. He attacked, I think it was around 1k before or after when Tade Pojaka attacked last year. And I think it's just, it's, it's just a testament to his quite incredible levels of self-confidence that he thought that that was that would be totally possible for him as someone who's not won this race before with some big favorites in the group like Vanderpoel and stuff he still had the confidence to go and do that and he just seemed to be riding on instinct really he said he had a feeling before the race that his legs were good that he was going to be able to do it so he just believed that instinct and went for it which I think yeah it's just a testament to his character really he's quite good at descending isn't he (laughs) yeah that clip of him overtaking the motorbike on one of the gravel descents is is pretty yeah was pretty amazing to be fair he seems to be fearless yeah it's a real racing asset as well it's like Mohoric has this weapon as well that when you can go away on a descent it can make it can make a big difference if people can't catch your draft they have to work to pull you back and you know if he'd looked at it mathematically and rationally maybe he would have thought Betiol and I think Bagioli at that point would have been two strong breakaway companions. Instead, he went it alone. I think he felt his chances were better if he just did his own thing and went as fast as possible. There's no doubt at all that he was the strongest rider in the race. The fact that he was away for 50 kilometres and then rode away again from that chase group indicated that. But you did hint earlier on that you felt he he shouldn't have won. Do you think if that group had caught him, do you think he would have had the legs to compete with them? Because he did look quite perky on the final climb up to Siena. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know how he was feeling. But hearing him talk after the race, he said with kind of in the last 20k, he was panicking slightly that he'd made a really bad move and that he'd done it all too early. And I do think with a cohesive chase behind, he would have been caught. And I can't see him then out sprinting them on the on the climb as well. Yeah, this, this race explains a lot about cycling and it also shows how cycling can surprise us because normally one rider against five riders the five riders even if they're significantly less strong should still win but in this case it was that wisdom was again flipped on its head so it's a fascinating race Rachel I feel we could talk for a lot longer about these races but thanks for explaining some of the nuance and I think we're all looking forward to the next fantastic battle between Demi Following and Lotte Kopecky I'm joined now by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist, for a very different perspective on the race to Rachel's. James was in the thick of the action on a race moto in the men's race. So, James, this is your first time covering Strade Bianchi, right? Uh, no, I've covered it uh, three times now. I was a little late to it, but this is my first time on a moto. Okay. So, before we get into your memories of the, the day itself, I just think it might be useful for our listeners to understand 
what a day as a photographer on a race moto actually consists of. So tell me about the day from, from the start of the race to the end in general. Well, you know, generally when you're on a motorbike, you know, it's, you're not television. There's, you know, the television's always got a guy in the moto in front of the brake, in front of the pack, you know, in the different groups, and they just sort of stay there all day, right? But when you're, when you're a photographer, it's, it's a much more impressionistic view. I often spend the first half of this race looking for, like, postcard panoramic scenery shots. And then as the racing gets more serious, you know, spend more time at the front. And then obviously, say the last 20K, 30K, you want to be at the front because if you just don't want to get caught behind because you you'll miss the finish. So that's what I, the way I usually set things up. But this was one hard race to cover on a moto as a photographer. It was one of the hardest days I've ever had on the back of a motorbike. It was just crazy. That's all I can say. I mean, it was just mayhem all the time. Just one more question about logistics. Like on a motor, you can't just go where you want, can you? I mean, there's a, there's an, to an extent you're, you're mobile and moving around and can get a good variety of shots, but you can't just swan around, buzzing around on the motor, can no, you? No, well, and there's a whole protocol, you know, they have, they have a, a race commissaires and regulators that say when you can pass or when you can drop back and take your pictures and you'll always have to have approval. And when the race is just kind of clicking along, you know, it's just a quick nod, yeah, going up the road or yeah, going back. But as things get, when things get intense, their role really comes alive and they're the ones calibrating every move so that everybody, you know, the, the goal is really that everybody can do their thing. All these different little pools, the, the, the riders, the teams, the fans, and us, the media can all kind of coexist and work together. And that's what everyone's trying to do. So Strade Bianche, I mean, as a writer, the closest the elements come to ruining my day, getting my notepad soaked by the rain, which isn't too bad a thing at all. I just assume from the outside that Strade Bianche is the kind of day that it breaks cameras and it breaks photographers. So how was it for you? Yeah, it was, like I said, it was one of the hardest days I've ever spent on a moto. As soon as you're behind the, the race, you're just eating the dust. I was like trying to send some images and I stopped at one point because I couldn't tell if I was sending my images were sharp or anything. I couldn't even see them, you know, on the back of my camera. And it's chaos. You know, as soon as they hit that first sector, it's just chaos. And, you know, they come quickly. And a lot of the roads in between, my driver, I, I did Tirreno last year with him. You know, he's done like six strides. Like, oh, yeah, we should be able to pass in between there, in between the different sections. And after about the first or second section, I was it was clear to me we weren't going to be passing a lot. So you really had to pick and choose. And even that, we missed... You know, there's this one section I've shot from the car several times. I believe it was the uh, San Luciano de Asso section, which is like 11, 12K, right? And it's just a really, really long section. Yeah, that, that's the one. But there was like this cool, cool farmhouse that I saw last year. And it's like, you know, let's go up that farmhouse. And then and we'll be the only ones to have that shot. So I was all proud of myself until we get to the farmhouse. And there's all... Like it's turned into a parking lot of camping cars. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And I knew that that 12 kilometer section, which is one of the juiciest sections, was just a loss. Was it as hard as covering a race like Paris-Roubaix or the Tour of Flanders? Uh, Roubaix for me is intense, but it's not that hard. I've been doing it, I've done it for 30 years. So I know all the cutoffs and, you know, and that's not even including the recons, which will really help you get the, the, the cutoffs down. So what were your main memories, impressions, and images from Strade Bianca? <laughs> Dust and yelling profanities 
not at my driver, but just out into the out into the air to anybody that heard us here because I was so often so frustrated not to be getting where I wanted exactly with enough time to prepare my shots. I mean, I still I still came up with some some good stuff. I had one shot I was really happy with, but you know I was hoping for more. Do you get a sense also from your perspective of? what it's like for the riders. Because again, from the television, I'm guessing that it's pretty intense for them as well. It gets very intense. It's like Rube when you hit those cobbles. Because I I mean, these sections I think are much crazier, say, than a lot of the Flanders cobbles, which are compared to Rube very well groomed, right? But this was pretty darn close just because of the dust factor. And, you know, you're going down some hills on these dusty roads. I mean, my motor, I was, there was a couple times with my motor several times. I was like, Oh man, I just like, whoa. And I mean, riders were passing us and the team cars were honking at us. And I don't know, I was not very comfortable on some of those turns and some of those descents. And did you have a sense at all of how the race was playing out? Well, I heard that this guy by the name of Pickcock was up the road and I knew I was behind it. That made me not very happy (laughs) until I got across finally. But, you know, it was like this one really nice section, which I'd really planned to be at. And that's when we got caught behind and and it was the Santa, Santa Maria section. And then, you know, we put, we, we got out ahead after that and then we were able to shoot them right towards the end. But, you know, that was a really spectacular section and I could see Fodor of the Year in that. Of course, it's easy to see that until you see it in your camera and have taken it. But I was like, I saw all the opportunities I wasn't getting on that and kicking myself and saying a lot of profanities. On the positive side, the, the landscape just, you know, I, there aren't many more races that take place in such a consistently beautiful and varying landscape are there is is amazing it's unbeatable it is the perfect combination of landscape and drama you know beauty and drama i think the war stories that come out of a race like this is what make it so legend and and even though i was personally frustrated yesterday i mean i wouldn't have traded it for anything right i mean if I can get on a moto next year, I'm getting on a moto. I got this map here in front of me. And I'm going to have to take serious notes about it so I don't make those same mistakes because I really want to nail it. And I think that, yeah, and it's one of the, it's just one of the exceptional races of modern cycling. It's it's just it's untouchable. And what was your favorite shot from the day? Well, my fa- my favorite turned out to be it's on the uh, Sant Martino de Gran Ingrania, which is another long one. It's like nine and a half k. And fortunately, I did the recon for with Rouleur, and we were, were working on a piece with uh, Lapierre, and I was on the recon with them, and we hit that section. So I got a good look of it on Thursday, and I got, as a result, because I mean, it's, it's an impressive section. I could have stopped many places, but then I realized the best place or the one that, that I like to really shoot is, is at the end, and I've shot that from the car, just kind of gets, coming out towards the end of it and running back in, and it's just... Right at the end of it, they come down this long hill and there's this huge electrical pylon thing. And yet it's such a Tuscan landscape. It's like this modern Tuscan landscape. And then they come down this long hill and, and it's backlit. And, and there's this glare effect and, and the dust blowing up into the glare. And you can just see the silhouette of the riders coming down. And it's pretty dramatic. And I, you know, I was really happy with my frame that day with that. I wouldn't be surprised to see that in, in my calendar at the end of the year. Right, thank you, James. I hope Paranese is a little less dusty, though with the current spring weather in Western Europe, be careful what you wish for. Next, we're going to be joined by Rulo Italia editor Emilio Previtali, who will give us his own unique perspective on Strada Bianchi. Emilio Previtali is the editor of Rulo Italia, a brilliant writer, accomplished mountaineer 
and skier, we find him flush with the glory of having just this weekend finished third in his age category in the half Ironman South Africa. Emilio, how are you? Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. So we've talked about the race action at Strade Bianche with Rachel and the intensity of being on the ground with James. But I'd like to ask you to put Strade Bianche into context. What does this race mean for Italian cycling fans? Well, the race is is becoming really relevant, uh, not only because uh, it's in a beautiful place, it's in Tuscany, because, you know, everything the people like about Italy, like the art, the food, everything the people like, is is going together at the same time in a new race because uh, is 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 a race that have at the same time the tradition of the town of the of the place but is a new race is not like the uh, monumental like the Sanremo or uh, the Giro di Lombardia so it's also a place where uh, people not really into cycling into racing like to to be part and they go there, they, they spend the day out in spring, and, and this is what is really good for this race. Italy is a place where everything is old, and when you finally have something new, with the, including the tradition, it's something really important to, to keep it. And have traditional racing fans also embraced Strade Bianche? Yeah, 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 there are a lot of... Uh, opportunity to to do that and it's great i mean what i like about that is also the opportunity to be there and and, and see the race uh, because it is spring is the moment when you go there and you for the first time maybe you ride the bike without the the you know with the bib with the short uh, pants and, and and so this is a nice moment i've already talked about this a little with james but the landscape around siena and tuscany it's got a good argument for being one of the most beautiful bike races in the world just because of the scenery. Can you tell us a bit about this part of Tuscany? Yeah, so the race is, uh, is, is just going through these places where there are the Strade Bianche. The Strade Bianche is a kind of road, uh, really clean, smooth, but on, you know, the ground is, uh, as you know, it's, it's like gravel, uh, but it's really fast and you can ride really well. And so there are this part of the um, race, you are visiting these places where uh, it's beautiful, there are the nature. And the other part is the town of Siena. The town of Siena, what is uh, incredible is that the town, when you are into the town, you really have the feeling you, you can be like in, in a medieval era because it was like, uh, if you look around, if, if you don't see people or, or there are no cars, but you can imagine to be like uh, a century ago and this is beautiful, it's, it's incredible. And so um, it's also a place where it's it's nice to go there and have um, the opportunity to go where, where you feel you have to go. Not, not uh, really something planned, but just go and, and this is what uh, makes this a great adventure for cyclists. And Emilio, you're, you're a man of the mountains, both in terms of the climbing you've done and cycling, but the terrain in Tuscany is more middle mountains, isn't it? Yeah, it's more middle mountain, but uh, Downton underestimates because uh, there, are, there are not... 200 meters on flat because at the end of the day you climb a lot and that's what uh, destroy your legs because you are keep doing like short climb and then another one and then another one and then another one and that that's what make also the race uh, complicated for, for the races because at the end of the day they they are so exhausted and the race is is just like uh, an eliminator race 
if you see when they the racer they go at the finish line they pass the, the line just one by one and this is not really common in 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 the world tour races tuscany is a real heartland of cycling like you know like flanders or Brittany or the basque country is it just the fact that the roads are very nice that people love cycling so much in Tuscany, or is there something about the people as well? I would say also about uh, the people, and there are a lot of cyclists, amateur cyclists, and uh, so there is a, a great tradition. It's, it's a bit like in Veneto, uh, where there are a lot of uh, amateurs, and uh, also in the past, uh, when Italy was a little bit the center of the, the world of, of the cycling, uh, and uh, Tuscany was one of the places where all the riders, they like to, to live, they like to stay, because uh, it's good to be there, the roads are good, the food is good, uh, you can train really well, because it's not like in the north of Italy, where it's complicated now to, to find nice places where train with the bike. So Tuscany is one of the reasons, because it's a place where it's, it's really good uh, to live in, in Tuscany. And I think that cycling, has a big connection with life, like normal life. So if one place is a place where you have a really nice and beautiful life, it's also a nice place for cycling. And where does this race sit in the Italian cycling calendar now? Is it as important as the other two monuments and the Giro d'Italia? I would say that what uh, have, what we have now is was one month uh, more of cycling because uh, before was the La Guelia was a, was a really important race, but just for racer. And then the, the, the real begin, uh, beginning of the season was the San Remo. Now we have one month uh, of cycling and talking about cycling. And this is really important in a, in, in a country where we normally we talk a lot about uh, f- football and so is is a bit a kind of warm up because the the magazine the newspaper the gazetta they start to talk about cycling and cyclists and this it bring the attention and the you know the the movement uh, active and this is really good and also i would say that the um, strade bianche is able to bring together racer and like people really like cycling as a competition sport but also people who really like to explore and traveling and going around so when when you are on the road and looking at the race you find ex-pro cyclists maybe or uh, people like the Gran Fondo but also people just going there because it's a beautiful place with with a backpack and spending the the day out and, and see the race. Great Emilio thank you for educating us a little more about this amazing race and we'll check back in for Milan San Remo. Yeah, for sure. Ciao. Ciao. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleau. Rouleau is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, out now, is Rulo 117, The Body Issue. One of the most fascinating things about road racing is that it is accessible to so many different body shapes. Basketball players are tall, distance runners are slight. But cyclists can be tall, short, stocky, skinny and everything in between. And outside the sport, 
anybody can cycle. To paraphrase René Descartes, I cycle, therefore I am a cyclist. Rule 117 features an exclusive interview with Julien Alaphilippe, the double world champion. Alaphilippe is one of the most physical cyclists in the world tour. His riding style is expressive and hides nothing. We knew we had to have him in the magazine. Also featured in Rouleau 117, in-depth interviews with Teo Gagan-Hart, Lizzie Banks and Matthias Skelmus. Cultural critic and cycling journalist Kate Wagner reflects on the sport's relationship with pain and suffering. And Rouleau Italia editor Emilio Previtali reflects on what cycling has in common with the Japanese art of kintsugi. There's also a fascinating interview with Instagram content creator Bo Markson, whose honesty and battle with body dysmorphia is an inspiring tale. Bo posts on Instagram with the handle at dadbod underscore cyclist. Rulo 117 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rulo.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari. I am joining you from Colorado, where it is still very cold and we're still on trainers, which is a bummer, <laughs> quite frankly. But you know what? We're only a couple weeks away from spring and that's time to ride. And uh, one of the things around here anyway, when you ride in the spring, is debris is everywhere. Uh, all that winter debris that kind of got pushed to the side of the road. I'm riding through all of that. So I've actually been a big proponent of road tubeless for a while for that reason and other reasons. Uh, you know, it seals punctures, but there's so many other benefits. But road tubeless is sort of a little bit polarizing. I think people are still a little reticent to jump in for a lot of reasons. You know, reliability has been a problem in the past. Uh, you know, setup is a little bit harder. Tires can be a little bit difficult to take off uh, on the side of the road. And then you got muck all over you. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm sold on it for a lot of reasons too. Uh, first of all, the better ride feel, lower rolling resistance. I mean, there's just so many benefits and I get so many fewer flats. So the debate is still raging. It's kind of like the new disc brake debate, you know, where that was sort of the, the big, should I upgrade? Should I not? Are the benefits tangible? And to me, just like the disc brake debate, the, the, the benefits just far outweigh any of the, uh, the drawbacks. But there's been a lot of uh, advancements in the last few years in Road Tubeless, and so I wanted to talk to some of the experts about what's going on in Road Tubeless and why it might be worth a second look if you were an early adopter who was disappointed. So on the line right now, I have Jeff Schneider, the Global Head of Product and Marketing at Kadex. Jeff, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you? I'm wonderful. And, and we were just talking earlier about when the last time we saw each other in person, I think it was in Belgium at the Tour de France what, almost four years ago now. And I think even at that tour, there was sort of whispers that tubeless was coming, you know, and it was sort of a big story. Kadex is, is, uh, is sort of at the forefront of a lot of advancements, and there's been a lot of technology that has come out just even since those days when, when we were in Belgium for the, the start of the tour that has made road tubeless a much more viable option. But before we jump into that, there's probably a lot of listeners who aren't sure what Kadex is, because actually that time in Belgium was when Kadex launched or it might have been relaunched, I guess you could say. So can you give me just a little bit of background on Kadex? Where did it come from? And when was it, quote unquote, reborn 
Um, and what makes it unique and different? So, I mean, basically, as far as where KDX came from, um, you really have to go back to the mid to late 80s when giant CEO at that time, Tony Lowe, set out what he called a moonshot mission. You know, first and foremost, I do want to clarify, it's no secret that KDX is one of the four brands under the giant umbrella. We haven't done anything to hide this fact, but we are treating KDX as a standalone brand. It's not an in-house component brand for spec on giant or live bikes. But kind of going back to that moonshot, you know, if you think about it, steel was really the primary material for bicycle production. Aluminum was beginning to pop up. You know, people were talking about it as this new, quote, wonder material. However, there were a limited number of garage shops and and small brands that were starting to play around with KDX, or I'm sorry, with carbon. Uh, And it was really starting to look like possibly the future of where the bike industry would go. But its capabilities were still a bit unknown. It was very new to bikes, and it was very expensive at the time. Tony's moonshot set Giant on a path where we began to explore new ways to take production of carbon out to the masses. And by 1986-1987 era, KDX carbon tubed bikes with steel and aluminum lugs began rolling off our factory floor. So you move into the 90s, carbon becomes the main focus of the industry, really primarily due to the lightweight, the ride properties of the material and the manufacturing processes. And so KDX just kind of faded into the background and and eventually ended. So moving forward to around 2016, we started to look at what some of the opportunities were for the bike industry. And we saw that there was a big opportunity to improve wheels. So we began developing and testing some prototypes with SunWeb uh, under the pseudonym of Hashtag Overachieve. And in 2019, as you stated, KDX was reborn at the Tour de France in Brussels. It was a great weekend. Greg Van Avermaet actually won the first stage of the tour. At the same time, we had Mariana Voss. She won I think it was stage two and stage three on that same day and the next day at the Giro Donna. So it was great. It kind of set us in the right path and let us know we were doing the right things. I'll tell you that. I mean, that's definitely a, a heck of a rebirth. <laughs> so if, uh, to the tour win and, and Mariana Voss, anything really with Mariana Voss. <laughs> yeah. Quite a show. And, and yeah, I was there and I remember you launched with uh, some wheels and some other components as well. So there was a lot to it. It wasn't just wheel development. Today we're talking wheels. Road tubeless, we're going to talk specifically about, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the technology that's packed into KDEX wheels. Nothing right now is more polarizing than, than tubeless tech. KDEX started with that, I believe, right? Like you guys jumped right into tubeless. Why is it so hard to get road tubeless right? And what is KDEX doing to get it? Like you said, there's a, there's a ton of technology that we've packed into it. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think at least traveling around the world, doing various KDEX activations, working with our pro riders, talking to retailers and consumers, I do have to kind of agree that it could potentially be difficult. And I do understand people's concerns for what tubeless is. But I, I do think we need to get away from the delusion that tires, you know, one, need to be hard as rock to work efficiently and make a rider faster. That kind of, quote, old, old school way of thinking needs to be addressed and really needs I think it really creates more problems than it actually solves. So when you look at road tubeless, I'm going to tell you quite simply, it really wasn't that difficult to roll out a complete tubeless, I'm going to call it a system, even though we're not really pushing that. You just basically had to go back and really take a hard look at how the products are produced, how they interact with one another. And I think it's critical. You can't just be a tire maker, make a tire and expect it to fit every rim. We looked at the rim 
We looked at the specs on the rim. We looked at the tires. We looked at how the tires were made. And we started to look at ways to rebuild that tire so that it fit the rim properly. I mean, if you think about it, Tubeless, like you said, you're a big, you've been a big fan. Tubeless has been around since, gosh, the mid-90s for mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and as a matter of pure fact, cars, trucks, motorcycles, they're all tubeless. And ironically, they're also hookless, which, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about yeah, our philosophies sure. on hookless versus hooked and kind of an odd fact. I don't think inner tubes have been used on cars since like the, the 1950s. And, and believe it or not, Goodyear Tire Company actually patented tubeless back in 1903. So it's been around for a long time. There's no reason. And, and I get, you know, cars are different from bikes, but also the weight loads and the types of forces you deal with are different. So I, I don't think it's that difficult to get tubeless right. And so I guess, and we're going to talk a little bit about hookless for sure. And I also want to talk a little bit about some of the standards and why some of those early tubeless systems had troubles. And, and that's one of the things that Kdex is doing to, to sort of minimize the variables by creating tires and wheels. But also there's, you know, that you riders still can use Kdex wheels with other tires. Um, and we're going to talk about that as well. But let's start with hookless rims, because I think that's a, a commonly misunderstood term and another polarizing sort of uh, design feature that, that people have been slow to embrace. What is a hookless rim and why might they be better or worse than hooked rims? Let's start there. Well, if you understand the manufacturing process for how a rim is made, when you make a hooked rim, in order to get that hook in there, you actually have to have a, um, it's a, it's actually a plastic form that you're wrapping the carbon around, you cure the carbon, and then you have to extract that form out of the cavity or the rim well. And what happens is you start to cut the carbon. Anytime you cut carbon uh, and you don't have a continuity of the flow of the fibers, you start to put in stress risers. You start to create a weakness in the rim. So you overbuild the rim so that you can actually cut away some of the material and, and hope that there's no delamination process. The beauty of a hookless rim is that you can actually continue that flow of carbon. You don't need that that piece in there that has to then be cut out and then extracted from the from the rim well. You can end up with a lighter, stiffer, and stronger rim structure by doing so. Obviously, as you said, that creates challenges, but I think the rim is is not really the challenge when it comes up to the concern of what consumers have of the tire blowing off the rim. That's why you have to then start looking at how the tire interacts with the rim itself. And that really boils down to a few elements. I mean, obviously, fit is critical, making sure that when the when the tire pops in and seats, that it seats properly on the rim. But you don't want to seat it on the hook. You want to you don't want the pressure to push it up against a hook. You actually want that bead to pop out and sit securely on a shelf in the rim. The problem with that is with the way tires traditionally have been built, folding tires, and specifically they that technology moved into a tubeless tire. The bead material really plays a big role in, in that ability because the Kevlar has a tendency over time to stretch. I mean, look, we've all experienced the difficulty of getting a fresh tire on the rim. And then, you know, when it's time to take that old tire off because it's worn out, it just kind of falls off when you deflate the air. It's really easy to take off. That's because the Kevlar bead stretches over time and, and creates those problems. That's partially due to the material, but it's also partially due to the old school way of thinking where we're running 90 to 130 PSI right. and, and you're putting a huge amount of pressure to expand 
that need. So in you know, and it's not a it's not a small concern, honestly, that you know, tires blowing up the rims. And and I would say, you know, given the standards early on with tubeless, I mean, that was more of a legitimate concern when tubeless road first came out because the tires and the rims were not playing nice with each other. How did KDEX solve that problem? Well, we went to the drawing board when we knew we wanted to set ourselves down this path. We looked at what the current tolerances were and they were all over the place. You know, when you're talking about uh, you know, micromillimeters, it can make a big difference in how the tire reacts to the rim. We actually developed a rim. Our, we had several primary goals. One, we wanted mounting of tubeless tires on our rims to be an easy process. We all know it's not a fun process. So sometimes you're just really wrenching it on. Nobody likes using tire levers if they don't have to, because you do risk po- causing problems of popping the bead or breaking the structure of the tire. Um, so we looked at how the rim needs to be developed, deep center channel on the rim uh, with a very, for lack of better terms, you know, a consistent rim diameter once the tire pops up onto the seat. We talked about Belgium. I mean, I mounted all those tires at the, the presentation that we had, and it was quite a few. I think it was like 30 or 40 tires mm-hmm. by hand with a standard track pump. It, you know, it was very easy, and that's because you can pinch the tire into the center of the well, get it onto the rim, and that first blast of air just kind of pops it up, and you get a very distinct snap into the rim. You know, if you if you look at ETRTO standards, which are primarily driven by tire manufacturers, by the way, in Europe, not by people who make wheels or rims, they have a tolerance that's 622 millimeters by, I think it's plus or minus five millimeter, plus or minus 0.5 millimeters. We shrunk that tolerance down. We're actually doing a tighter tolerance where we do a plus or minus 0.03. Mm-hmm. And that just allows us to have a better snug fit on the rim. You know, probably one of the biggest challenges, I, I do think what you're seeing now when it comes to tubeless, especially what, you know, our target audience, which is that high performance racer, you know, or the connoisseur, real advocate of cycling, we are starting to see tubeless get more accepted into the market. But the biggest challenge we faced was, you know, hey, I don't want it to blow off the rim. Mm-hmm. And and that was our biggest concern. With a tubular, you don't have that problem, so the pros will ride. The beauty is you're starting to see the pros, just like they did with disc brakes, starting to kind of accept that technology and starting to race it more now. Jeff, we were just talking about ETRTO. What the heck is ETRTO? You know, people have probably seen those letters thrown about, but it's it's one of those terms, you know, like in the bike world, we have a lot of terms. Uh, what's ETRTO? For lack of better terms, I'm going to call it a standard. Uh, okay. As you well know, in the bike <laughs> industry, knows that term too. <laughs> yeah, as you know, in the bike industry, there are no standards. Right, and we right. just we just don't have them. It's whatever somebody can come up with. But mm-hmm. basically, ETRTO is a European group or commission that came together, and it's like I said, it was predominantly made up of tire manufacturers, so people like Continental, Vittoria, Schwalbe, you know, a handful of, of and Hutchinson, and these guys all come together. I think I think the biggest problem with ETRTO is that it 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 really needs to be a complete system driven piece, which means it has to include what the the rims are. So ETRTO has a standard for hookless rims, and and you can't run more than five bar, which is about seventy two point five psi in your tire on a hookless rim, and that's because the pressure coming out causes that stretch, and it will eventually blow off the rim. My argument would be that hey, seventy two point five might even be too high of air pressure. Just seeing where the industry's going, 
the size of the tires. I, I love the fact that we're seeing the go-to tire today is probably about a 28 to 30 millimeter tire. And, and we're even seeing that in the pro Peloton riders are riding 28s, which is great to see, you know, they can start playing around with dropping the air. One of the things that, you know, I was talking earlier about changing conventional thought of, of air pressure. I mean, the first thing most people do is they look at whatever the max air pressure is on the tire. They put their pump on and they pump it up to that max air pressure and they go out and ride it. And, and it's just not efficient because you, you basically you're creating a very hard surface that you're rolling on for most intense purposes on a pretty rough surface. I mean, we're not all riding on, you know, we used to have a product manager that used to say his goal was to make the bike feel like it's riding on the painted white line on the road, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, which basically is a track. If you're riding mm -hmm. on a wood or a concrete track, you can really run higher air pressure because you're not dealing with any of those road imperfections that cause the, the tire to hop. Um, we call it, um, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm, my, my, I'm having brain freeze. It's a problem with being old. Um, <laughs> the, the goal of any person when they're riding to be more efficient is you want to keep going forward. You do not want to slow down. We've all experienced coming into very rough surfaces, whether it's cobbles, whether it's gravel or whatever, where the bike starts to slow down, you have to put a harder effort. And that's because your vector of movement is no longer going forward. It's going upward on average because of those constant bumps. Lower air pressure brings that forward vector back down to forward or as close to forward as you can go and actually can be more efficient than the higher air pressure. So I think once the industry thinks that and understands and grasps that, I think you're going to see people start to move. That's what happened in mountain bikes. That's what's happened in gravel. Yeah. It's, and if you guys want to, if you listeners want to read more about that concept, it's called hysteresis. And uh, the great Leonard Zinn does a lot of talking about hysteresis. And I've written quite a few articles about it as well. And that's basically just the, the lag time between the tire deforming and then reforming. Um, and that's essentially what provides uh, the tire's ability to conform around obstacles rather than bouncing off of them. Uh, and that means more speed for you. So it, it seems counterintuitive, but a lower tire pressure actually is faster, uh, which is one of the things that tubeless allows. So that is one of the benefits of tubeless that I think people don't immediately realize. And, you know, and you can also talk about the lack of the inner tube, which is another uh, another way that you know you're reducing friction, you're reducing rolling resistance. It, it's quite a, a big package, but let's stick to the thread, I guess. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Early on in KDEX, I remember when the launch came along that the tires were also, uh, you, you know, KDEX said, use our tires. Why was that? And has that changed at all? We do not say that you have to ride our tires with our rims. Obviously, it's my job. And, and, and I will tell you, based on the research that we've done, if you want the best fit and the best performance, our tires on our rims will mm -hmm. give you that best performance. And that's if you follow the guidelines of, of proper air pressure and such. You know, one of the things that uh, is really interesting and probably our biggest challenge is, is weight of a tire. People really focus on the weight of the tire. But when you look at how, if you want a true tubeless tire, KDX tires, you can actually mount them on the rim and you can go ride them. You don't need sealant. They hold the air. They won't release the air, but they're not, they're not stiff. That was the biggest problem of the old tubeless. I remember when I worked for a prior company, tubeless was just coming on board, but the tires were just dead. Um, I, I kind of equate it back to, 
if you you don't probably don't go back far enough. I, I rode, you know, a, I raced on a steel mountain bike. The company that I was racing for at the time came out with an aluminum mountain bike and it was dead. Mm-hmm. That was the difference is you lost the liveliness of the tire because they made the tires so overbuilt and stiff that they just didn't have any ride quality to them. They didn't have liveliness. So what we do with our tires is we have a single layer, 170 TPI casing, but it's completely sealed. You can run it. Uh, really, the main reason you use sealant is to seal a puncture if it happens. And in most cases, I don't even know I've gotten a flat until I get home and I can see the spray on my down tube or on my C tube. But, you know, the goal is you want to try to minimize the impact of how much air you lose. And that's been one of the, the biggest stories I've told racers. I have I really quick story. When we first were playing with KDX and with KDX tires, we were working with a CCC team went to their team camp in Spain. Uh, and the first day after they went out for the ride, they asked me, why are we riding tubulars for training? And I said, you're not, you're riding something different. They're like, oh, come on, this feels like tubular. And then a couple of days later, one of the guys, Patty Bevan came up to me and asked, hey, um, you know, it's kind of weird when we train here normally, we get a lot of flats. We haven't been getting flats. And I, I jokingly said, oh, you've probably got flats but you just didn't get flats. And he looked at me like, what? <laughs> so I, I, his bike happened to have the spray. I asked the mechanic, don't wash it. Let me, I was doing a product presentation that night. And I explained to the guys, you guys have been riding tubeless. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, a shock to them because they were afraid of tubeless. They were afraid of the things I said, the beauty of tubeless is you might get a puncture, but you can keep riding rather than stopping and throwing your hand up in a race and saying, I got a flat and waiting, you can ride until the moment's right to actually make out that swap. So, you know, with, with KDX, I think you're going to get the best overall performance benefits if you use our tires. But we realize everybody has a favorite tire. We are working very closely with those manufacturers to make sure that they work. So as a matter of fact, our wheels and even our tires are in most major tire manufacturers' uh, labs right now. When we work with somebody like Vittoria, we work with Continental, we actually send them a wheel, we send them a tire, and we say, we need, this is what we're doing to make this fit. We want your tires to be compatible with our system. First of all, I'm flattered that you think I'm young enough that I wasn't riding steel and, and aluminum. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, but secondly, uh, you can also see on the KDEX website a list of tires that Uh, KDX recommends for the wheels so that you are picking the most optimal combination. So if that is a concern, if you're, you know, if you're listening and say, oh, no, I got to get a KDX wheel, I got to get KDX tires, which by the way, I like the KDX tires. But if you don't, I mean, everybody's got their preference. Like you said, there is a list there to make sure that you're getting a tire that works well with the KDX rim. I do want to jump to sealant because I do think sealant is a very misunderstood uh, substance. It's a magical substance in the bike world. Um, And you brought up a good point that sealant is not intended to seal the tire to the rim, it is intended to seal punctures. Where did that come from where where we had it in our heads that that sealant was supposed to seal the tire to the rim? Was it ever that way? I don't think so. I mean, I've never looked at sealant as that. I've always looked at it as something that seals a puncture. Kind of going back to my earlier comments, my, my comment was really more directed at, there's a lot of tires on the market that are labeled as tubeless, but we've all put the sealant in the tire and you pump it up and it starts kind of spraying out through the sidewalls. And eventually that super lightweight tire, if you take it off after you've finally got it to retain air, that tire actually picks up a lot of weight because you're using more sealant to go in to help seal the inner wall of the tire. But as far as, as the fit on the actual rim 
seat of the rim. If you're requiring the air or the, the sealant to move out and kind of seal that section, that means there is not a proper fit. Means you probably have a stretched bead or the tire just wasn't made to a, a tight tolerance to make sure that that seats and snaps out onto the rim. I'm sure there's a certain amount of chemical reaction where it does help kind of keep the bead on the on the rim once it's once it's locked up on. But for the most part, the sealant should be able to move freely throughout the entire system and actually actuate when it hits the puncture spot, the location. I, I want to talk uh, more about sealant, but I actually just remembered a question I wanted to ask you earlier when you were talking about Kevlar beads. Um, is, is, you know, in, in the fact that they can stretch and that the tolerance can change, is there a different technology now that's in tubeless that uh, prevents that stretching? Is, are we still using Kevlar? So we're still using Kevlar, but what Kadex has done is we've introduced carbon into the bead of the rim. So, or the bead of the, the tire. So now the carbon will will not stretch. It, it keeps it tight. And so a Kadex tire, the day you put it on, the day you take it off, you're going to see it's going to have that same lock on the seat of the rim um, because you're not going to stretch that. Now, with that, it does bring concerns and issues. If, if somebody doesn't know how to properly mount the tire, like I said, you can do it by hand. But if they start really kind of, if they try to, the common way of thinking is let's get it up onto one side of the rim and then let's start trying to force it onto the other uh, side of the rim. What we do is I pinch it to the middle of the rim and then you can actually just drop the bead in and then pop it out. If you do use a tire lever, you have to be very careful because of the carbon, you can potentially snap that carbon and then the tire will blow off the rim. So a little bit more care has to be taken. Well, that bears repeating too. I mean, I think when you look at uh, hookless designs, there is that deep center channel and you mentioned it earlier. That is the key to mounting and, and unmounting these tires, dropping it in that channel so that th there is more play so that you can get it over the rim. And that's a little bit different than, than a lot of us were raised doing, you know, getting, breaking that one side of the bead uh, and then, you know, using the tire lever to, to get that off. And that's what loosened up the other side. This is different. Uh, this is a different process. Uh, you have to drop it down to that center channel, and that's what makes it so easy to get the tire on and off. And I think that is, whenever you're trying to get somebody to do something differently after many years of doing something one way, it's, it's a hard sell. But I think, you know, once you do it a few times, it becomes intuitive. It goes back to the conventional thought. It is the bike industry. It's how they used to do it, so that's how we should do it. Right. right. Um, you know, and a lot of people will start at the valve and go to 6 o'clock opposite the valve, and that makes it even harder. I start opposite the valve and work my way to the valve. So then you're making that last hop on super easy to put them on by hand. I mean, and yeah, I think conventional wisdom, I mean, geez, you know, they used to ride and smoke cigarettes in the tour. <laughs> I think we've kind of gotten <laughs> past that. Uh, so, you know, the, the advancements are possible. But I do want to jump back to sealants. I'm sorry about that digression, everybody. But I did want to make sure that that got uh, covered. But the sealants. Are they all the same? Uh, is there one that you recommend for Kadex wheels and tires? What, how do you how do people choose? Um, you know, I, in my experience in working in the industry, I've tried a lot of different sealants. Many work, meaning that they actually will seal the punctual the the puncture really without noticeable uh, difference when you're riding. Like I said, sometimes you might just get a flat and not even know you got it. You get home and you're like, oh crap, I got a puncture. Obviously under the untimely event that you get, you hit something big, it cuts a big hole. I, I have found that, that the sealants that do have particles in it that help kind of initiate the clogging of the hole so that the sealant, can, the latex or, or material, whatever they're using to seal actually starts to work. We've, we've done some partnerships with stands 
Um, we've played around with orange. There's a couple of others that we've played around with. Some I found they just spray forever. Mm-hmm. It seems like they take forever to, to seal a puncture. I personally am a big fan of either stands or orange because I do think having those particles go in and kind of lock in and start that coagulant mm-hmm. process that plugs up the hole is really critical. And that's really when you get a bigger puncture. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the other things that's hard for us to learn if we've been around a long time is when you see that spray coming out that first time, don't panic. That's, that's actually the, the, that's the sealant doing its work. It's when it started, when it keeps spraying, then it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that I, I tell, especially like the pro riders and, and even uh, consumers a lot is if, if you do lose a significant amount of air that, where you maybe have to use a CO2 cartridge, I always tell them, I recommend when you get home, uh, drain out the the old sealant, put fresh sealant in, because there is something that happens with the cold uh, mm-hmm. compressed air when it gets in there, it does cause some, some reaction and separates the sealant. At least that's what I found. And so I found that the sealant doesn't react as quickly or as well as it used to. So I always tell people, if you run into that situation, definitely refresh your sealant before you go ride again. I, I mean, I think that warrants its own episode is it's just all about sealants. I mean, there are a lot of different ones. There's, I mean, there's environmental considerations. There's all sorts of stuff going on. We are just about out of time, though. So <laughs> we'll, we'll have to save that for another episode. Jeff, thanks for, for joining me today. And uh, if uh, people want to learn more about KDEX wheels, uh, where can they go on the interwebs? kdex-cycling.com. And that's a good resource for all the, the technology and links to social and all that. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned, you know, we have a pretty good list of compatible tires. Uh, that list is growing on a weekly and a monthly basis. I mean, we get tires for uh, testing in-house all the time. So nice. it is growing. And if you have questions about anything we talked about today, you can, of course, uh, reach out to me on Twitter at SlowGuyFastRide or on Instagram at SlowGuyOnTheFastRide. And I will happily pester Jeff with all of your questions. <laughs> so feel free to reach out to me anytime. And of course, you can reach out to at Ruler Magazine on all social media and ask questions there as well. And uh, check out the other uh, episodes of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcasts. Jeff, thanks again for joining me today. And for everybody listening, thank you for joining me today and listening to us chat about tubeless. Hopefully it has allayed some of your fears and you're willing to give it a go because I think the benefits just vastly outweigh uh, any potential downsides. And I think, Jeff, you would agree. <laughs> Jeff, thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Dan. And we'll uh, we'll catch you all in the next episode of the Ruler Podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.